Hello, I'm Rebecca Rosewood, and this is Thrice Cursed. Warning. Thrice Cursed is a true crime and paranormal podcast. It is intended for mature audiences. Some graphic depictions of violence and other unpleasant material may exist beyond this point. For more specific content warnings, please reference the episode notes. Hello, cursed ones. It's a little late, but happy holidays. Here's hoping they were merry, peaceful, and bright, whether you spent it on your own, quarantining away this year, with family, or hurting three sick cats that needed to be medicated. Specific, you say? Yes. That was my holiday this year. And before you ask how that was, it's ongoing. So ask me when the 10 days are up and I've sufficiently lost my mind. I'm almost there. Perhaps for today's story, or stories, having lost my mind would have been a blessing. Maybe then I wouldn't have to remember them. But alas, insanity doesn't find you when it's convenient. Now, there will be no hints as to what frivolity and horror is in store for you today, but I will say that this one is written in a different style than usual, and will have a little more emphasis on storytelling So once I get into it, know that it is no longer about me or the realities of my life. Some liberties have been taken here for the sake of storytelling. Now grab your cocoa, mulled cider, or whatever your warm choice of drink is. Grab the best spot by the fire and get snuggled up under your blanket. Maybe there you can prevent the darkness from seeping into your bones. The chills? Well, (laughs) those will surely be inevitable. Are you cozy? Good. Let the story begin. The sun has settled for the night. It didn't take long. It fell asleep quickly and did not shirk from lying below the horizon, comfortable until the next day. The moon has awoken and shines through the windows of our family home, a four-bedroom ranch home seated at the top of a small hill blanketed with snow. The candles are lit and the robust smell of the smoke from the wicks permeate the nostrils. The fire is blazing, and rightfully so, as it's the only warmth in the home. Surrounded by a warmth of light, it's easy to convince oneself that you're safe here. Nothing could harm you. Seated at the foot of my rocking chair by the mantle are three children, all nieces and nephews. Having not been blessed with children, but with a brother and sister, their children look intently on as I prepare to tell them the stories once told to me. My mind reels with stories, Aesop's fables, Edgar Allan Poe, and even tales from those little golden books my parents read to me when I was a child. 
but tonight calls for a special selection of stories. Stories so dark that they create a sharp contrast against the brightness and warmth of the fire. The mood is right, and the kids are finally old enough. The world is full of stories. Prior to social media, texting, cell phones, dial-up, landlines, and even telegram, our world was one big oral tradition. In 1440 in Germany, Johann Gutenberg invented the printing press, which could push out 3,600 pages a day. A lot of folks like to say this killed the oral tradition, and hey, maybe they're right. Perhaps we've lost our memory for stories that are longer than 5 to 15 seconds. Perhaps we have evaded the urge to tell stories when all we have to do is just give it a quick jujul and read rather than remember it. But I'm pretty sure these stories live on despite those opinions. The stories carry on in specific cultures. Just because you may not have heard of them told to you, it does not mean they are not alive and well. For some cultures, their stories are everything. These are the stories I'll be telling today. Some of the strongest stories that live on today focus around the holidays and the winter season. Considering winter signals the death of summer, and writers tend to use winter to represent tales of sorrow, death, and other such unpleasant things, it's no surprise that winter happens to be where some of the more terrifying stories reside. The stories we dive into today aren't those you would typically tell around the Yule Log during an awkward family Christmas, Hanukkah, or whatever you celebrate. Then again, maybe they are. I don't know you, and I don't know your life. Perhaps you genuinely enjoy terrifying small children. In either case, each of these stories is cultural and they have been strengthened and passed on by the cultural, real-life, communicative game of telephone. Some of these stories are based on reality or legitimate people, while others might be. Still have that drink you grabbed earlier? May your drink warm your soul and your blanket warm your body as you prop up your feet on Grandma's old ottoman. Our first story takes us to Bavaria, Germany during the late 15th century. We've always heard tales of Santa or the equivalent, But there has also always been the opposite figure. Every protagonist must have an antagonist, and with every good, there must be evil. Even if it's only Martin Short's character, Jack Frost in Santa Claus 3, he invented chill, you know. Probably the most well-known anti-Santa is Krampus. We won't be talking about him today. Instead, I'll be telling you the story of Hans Trapp, the antithetical Santa that once stabbed a child, sliced him into tiny pieces, and cooked and ate his flesh. Yes, we're going there. But every story comes from somewhere. Every story has an ounce of truth in it. Who was this Hans Trapp? Where is this ounce of truth? Hans von Trotha was many things. He was a German knight and marshal within the Prince Elector of the Palatinat. The Palatinat was a country claimed by and part of the Holy Roman Empire. It stretched from the Upper Rhine in Germany to parts of France towards the Odenwald Range. It included Heidelberg and Mannheim, two capital cities. In addition to being a German knight and marshal, he was also a Chevalier d'Or, a French honorary title. I can't be sure how he got all of these accolades, but after I read some of what he did, I think you'll understand that even in the 15th century, it seems everyone got a participation trophy. During his time as a youth, he proved himself worthy to John of Magdeburg, the patron saint of Bishop Philo von Trotha. He also proved himself by 1480 to Philip the Sincere, 
the elector. Philip sincerely gave him hereditary fiefs. He received two castles, Berwartstein, to include all of its belongings, and Grafendon. But Hans was only interested in one of the castles. He wasn't interested in the castle of Grafendon. It was falling apart due to the fact that it was built for multiple and joint owners, and much like the group projects we were all forced to do in high school, no one took responsibility. Berwartstein, however, turned into a literal citadel. The castle included a battery tower on a platform which allowed for the ancestor of the musket, the culverin, to be set up. Multiple culverins could be set up to allow for easy access to anyone attempting to breach the stronghold. Think Lord of the Rings, only smaller? (laughs) But don't tell Hans that. For all intents and purposes, Hans was a small-timer. Sure, he owned a castle or two, but not much was known about him until his feud with Henry. If it were any ordinary Henry, we wouldn't care. Sorry, Henry. This was Henry, the abbot of the Order of Benedictine Monks at Weissenberg Abbey. Henry was pissed off. If a monk can be pissed off, because the items within Berwartstein Castle were originally the property of the monastery. He said Hans did not acquire this castle legitimately because the electoral Palatinat had not been granted possession of the castle but instead had merely been under his protection. Instead of the elector defending the monks in this dispute, he promoted Hans to marshal and sold him the entire estate. Now, for a man like Hans, mere ownership simply wasn't good enough. Hans's pride was on the line. He decided he would dam up the Wieslater River, and <laughs> let's think about that for a second. Creating a dam is no small task, and I'm all for petty where it's deserved, not that this was, but that's a bit much, don't you think? Thanks to the ultimate act of unwarranted pettiness, Weissenberg, the town beside the castle, was now without water. Not to mention that when you dam a river, the water has to go somewhere, and in this particular instance, it went to flooding the meadows of Bobenthal. Now, the memorable Henry, the abbot, complained. After all, they needed water. This is exactly what Hans anticipated. In order to appease Henry, and in accordance to his diabolical plan, Hans tore down the dam. Not in stages, but all at once. And as we've seen any time a dam breaks, it kind of causes a problem. So Hans tore down the dam, which subsequently created a huge flood in the town of Weissenberg and wreaked havoc on their economy. Hans, now a baron, fought openly with the abbot. The abbot attempted to put an end to things by calling upon the emperor. This did absolutely nothing. So, in a true who-wants-to-be-a-millionaire phone-a-friend lifeline, the abbot reached out to Pope Innocent VIII. Eventually, the successor to Innocent, Alexander VI, asked that Hans appear in Rome in order to be questioned about his loyalty to the church. Hans couldn't be bothered to make the trip, and instead decided he would throw a total BF and write a letter. (laughs) This letter essentially accused the Pope of being immoral and ended up causing an anathema, or a document officially shunning Hans, to be written up. This resulted in the excommunication of Hans von Trotha. As if they were waiting for the smoke from the chimney, 
both the Roman German king and Emperor Maximilian I determined they would levy an imperial ban against him as well. So where does the story come from and how does it tie into the holidays? Basically, Hans was a pretty bad dude. To go up against the church would definitely get you put in the history books in the 15th century. Hans stood at a towering two meters tall, which is six foot five inches. This would be tall even by today's standards, and back in the 15th century, the average height for an adult male was one inch shorter than it is today at 5'5". Hans was terrifying, imposing, and became a legend in the area of his residence. They called him Hans Trapp. And Palatinat, now the German federal state of Rhineland-Palatinat, or Rhineland-Feltz, covering around 2,105 square miles, he was described as a robber baron, and eventually, this tall man became known as the Schwarzerritter, or Black Knight. The Black Knight was restless, and as a spirit, he stalked at night. He is featured in the legend of Jungfernsprung. A man suddenly burst out of the thicket, probably the robber baron, Hans Trapp from Berwartstein Castle. The man clearly intended to rob the virgin of her innocence. So gross. In nearby areas, his name was used as a way to scare children into behaving. Based off of that last statement, that's disgusting. Uh, I'm not a parent, but I can't imagine telling my kids that some guy who's trying to rape someone is going to come and attack my children because they didn't behave. Like, what is that? (sighs) It's fine. It's fine. Hans Trapp was said to accompany St. Nicholas while in a white beard, pointed hat, and a rod. The Alemannic German poem reads, Look, there comes Hans Trapp. He has a nice pointed hat and a beard white like a roan. He comes from the beautiful starry sky and brings children a rod who do not do singing and praying. Look, Hans Trapp, we are so small and good and obedient at home. Shouldn't come with your stick because we can sing and pray too. Hans Trapp also became known as the Christmas Scarecrow. But unlike the beloved Scarecrow from the original Wizard of Oz, he's not someone you would want to skip down the yellow brick road with. Legend has it that after being excommunicated, Hans took up with Satan himself, selling his soul and living out his life in the forested mountains of Bavaria. The longer he remained sequestered away, the more his anger, resentment, and greed grew. It's even said that it's in these mountains where Hans developed his taste for human flesh. In an effort to disguise himself, Hans stuffed straw into his clothing and went on the prowl for children. It's here that the legend briefly mentioned earlier came to be. A boy around the age of 10 years old had the distinct misfortune of crossing paths with Hans one day. Hans Trapp then viciously stabbed the boy with a sharp stick and brought his body back to his makeshift home. It's there that Trapp is said to have cut the boy's body into several pieces and roasted it. However, before he could eat it, Trapp was struck by lightning and killed instantly. This wouldn't be the end of Trapp, however. Hans Trapp would team up with dear old Santa. While Santa remains the holly jolly man that jumps down chimneys to bring presents and joy, Hans has settled for redemption. 
He spends his holidays trying to persuade naughty children to come over to the side of virtuosity and change their naughty ways. What those methods of persuasion are? (laughs) Well, I don't want to know. What I do want to know, however, is what the hell actually happened in England in 1855. On May 26, 1855, an issue of Bell's Life in Sydney published a column that read, It appears on Thursday last night there was a very heavy snowfall in the neighborhood of Exeter in the south of Devon. On the following morning, the inhabitants of the above towns were surprised at discovering the footmarks of some strange and mysterious animal endowed with the power of ubiquity, as the footprints were to be seen in all kinds of unaccountable places, on the tops of houses and narrow walls, in gardens and courtyards, enclosed by high walls, and palings as well in open fields. The superstitious go so far as to believe that they are the marks of Satan himself, and that great excitement has been produced among all classes, may be judged from the fact that the subject has been discanted on from the pulpit. The impressions of the foot closely resembled that of a donkey's shoe and measured from an inch and a half to, in some instances, two and a half inches across. Here and there it appeared as if cloven, but in the generality of the steps the shoe was continuous and, from the snow in the center remaining entire, merely showing the outer crest of the foot, it must have been concave. Reading this, you might tell yourself it was only a story. Anything to help you sleep at night. It was surely thought up in the mind of someone like Stephen King, as what might even be a throwaway story placed in some collection to be published after his own demise. But no, these footprints were found on the night of the 8th and the morning of the 9th of February 1855, starting in the southwest region of England called Exmouth, up to Topsham, and all the way into Tynmouth, a seaside town and fishing port in Devon. This is a distance of nearly 22 miles as far as Google Maps goes. Walking this distance would take nearly six hours. Some writers stated the footprints went even further. Reports during the event estimate the trail as short as 40 and as long as 100 miles. As one could expect, there is very little evidence that comes from anything during the mid-19th century. There were some documents, but those didn't really offer much information as they themselves were published in an effort to gather more information. Over 30 separate locations along the trail were reported. In his editorial and collection of source material on the event called The Devil's Hoofmark Source Material on the Great Devon Mystery of 1855, Mike Dash describes the prints. The marks, which were almost all four inches long by three broad, or rather smaller, appear to have been left by a biped, although the prints were almost always in a single file rather than alternating to right and left as most tracks do. Sometimes the prints appeared cloven, sometimes not, and the stride was tiny, almost mincing, at between 8 and 16 inches. To be honest, if these are the devil's footprints, I'm not impressed. I mean, I know everyone always says size doesn't matter, but that's really small for some otherworldly being you expect me to be afraid of. More terrifying than the size is the fact that the marks were also left on haystacks, roofs, and walls. While there is a lot that could lead one to reject the notion that these hoof prints belong to the devil, 
The fact is that this was somewhat of an agrarian culture. They made their living predominantly from hunting, fishing, and farming. All of this to say, they know their tracks pretty well. If they really did belong to a common farm animal, it seems only logical they would have known. Heavy snow fell around the time the tracks were said to be made. After that, there were rising temperatures and then rain. Then the temperature dropped again, which could change up how the tracks look. But one local source asserted that many tracks left by common animals remained easily identifiable in the morning. And on the whole, it appears that a considerable majority of the inhabitants, most of whom were country people who might have been expected to be familiar with all manners of trails left by the local wildlife, were puzzled and in many cases scared by these tracks and by the places in which they were discovered. You mean like on the walls? <laughs> yeah, I don't know many bipedal donkeys that climb walls. But then I'm not a country folk, so maybe I just lack the familiarity, I guess? I'll get back to you after I've moved to Vermont and lived there for a while. Maybe it's just a rare breed. There have been multiple explanations for this series of strange hoof marks over the years. Mike Dash, in his article, concluded there was no one source for the hoof marks. He determined that some were probably hoaxes, some made by common animals with four legs, and some were made by wood mice. Other explanations have included an experimental balloon, a kangaroo, and badgers. Now, the kangaroo one is simply absurd, unless one escaped from a local zoo. But even still, the traveling distance of 40 to 100 miles alone makes that seem insanely far-fetched. As for this experimental balloon, <laughs> well, I needed to know more about that. According to prolific British novelist Jeffrey Household, this experimental balloon had been released by mistake from Devonport Dockyard. The balloon was believed to have trailed two shackles on the end of its mooring ropes. Now, I couldn't confirm this, but I'm speculating wildly that when they say balloon, it's more like a hot air balloon or a blimp than the type of balloon you'd see at a birthday party. With context, it seems pretty obvious, but that's what I initially pictured. You know, just like a red balloon floating through town with something hanging from it. I don't know. So, you're welcome for having stated the obvious. Anyway, Jeffrey got this information from a local man, Major Carter. Carter's grandfather had apparently worked at the dockyard at the time and claimed that the incident had been buried because the balloon caused an immense amount of damage and wrecked a number of conservatories, greenhouses, and windows before finally touching down in Honiton, where it was then presumably rushed away from and hidden forever. Likely in an effort to avoid having to pay for all of the damage this caused. I could totally see this because my grandpa used to create some insanely wild inventions, like a golden toilet with a red carpet, a la the Golden Throne, that he would then ride around the neighborhood with his dog. <laughs> I could 1000% see him inventing something that accidentally caused a ton of damage, and then just swearing us all to secrecy so he could get away with it and laugh about the story at a family gathering later. <laughs> Not that he ever did that. Uh... <laughs> As believable as something like that may be, many skeptics have questioned how the balloon would have been able to travel in such an erratic nature with no true course and somehow avoid the trailing shackles and ropes being caught on some kind of obstacle. Which is an excellent point. Of course, the human mind is an interesting place. 
We do a lot to rationalize what we see, feel, and experience. This was no different. We need answers. We require answers. Even if the answers are too far-fetched to be true. Like some kind of experimental hoofprint balloon. As human beings, if we believe it's believable, that's typically good enough for us. Even if it isn't. Speaking of good enough, I'm going to take a quick break where you'll hear about a podcast good enough that it should have been in your ear holes yesterday. So, you're welcome. You'll also hear the usual ads and stuff, so, sorry! Hey, Cursed Ones. Since you're listening to my podcast, I can only assume that, like me, you're into the dark and spooky sides of life that most people tend to stay away from. If that's the case, you'll love the new partnership I'm a part of. I've partnered with Melodramatic Fine Art to bring you a beautiful set of five spooky-looking postcards. Personally, I'm framing and hanging mine. They're so cool. I'm not sending them to anybody. They're mine. (laughs) Each postcard is five by seven inches, has a matte finish, and features photographs of eerie, spooky shit that I just cannot get enough of. We're talking dark chandeliers, a bathtub full of dirt and leaves, random toilet brush art that you'll have to see to believe. Not to mention, the creator of these is one of my very first supporters. So if you could help me support her, head to thricecursepod.com and click the menu option postcard set or search melodramatic fine art on Etsy. Make sure to use code THRICE10 at checkout for 10% off. Welcome to Brew Crime, a true crime and beer podcast. This is a podcast where we pick a theme, cover a few cases, and pair them with craft beer. Join me, Mike. And me, JT. As we explore the world of crime, conspiracies, or whatever catches our attention. You can find us on social media at Brew Crime or our website, brewcrime.com. And you can find us on any podcast app at Brew Crime Podcast. Join us as we discuss the horrible crimes that surround us and maybe, eh, probably, not definitely tip a bottle or two back as you do it. Drink with us the second and last Tuesday of every month. As I said, that podcast is so good. No one ever listens to me. Not literally, because I mean, you're listening to my podcast. But you get it. It's it's fine. Well, enough of my rambling. Let's get back into it. If you have kids or are just obsessed with Disney, you've likely heard the story of Elsa the Ice Queen. It's a lovely little tale about when self-love and the love for a sister trumps all. Cute, right? You're going to have to let that go. You know how to do it. There's a whole song and everything. Instead of the Snow Queen Elsa, I'm going to be telling you about the Snow Woman. I know, I know. Snow Queen has a much better ring to it, but what can you do? The Snow Woman, also known as Yukiana, or another variation that will change depending on the region, is a spirit or yokai commonly known in Japanese folklore. She is arguably one of the most well-known yokais and yet has the least known about her. According to the lore, the Yukiana wanders the Japanese Alps, and in the winter, she preys on travelers who become lost in the heavy snowstorms. It is not just one woman, because (laughs) where's the horror in that? There are multiple Yukiana. Most Yukiana tales come to us from the region of Tohoku and Japan's frozen north, while other stories do trickle in from outlying areas. Within the Tohoku region, the stories tend to come from four distinct areas. Aomori, I wait, 
Miyagi, and Yamagata. And while the stories out of these regions do account for the largest percentage of the tales, there are few parts of Japan that do not have at least one story of a Yukiana. As far as research could find, Okinawa and Hokkaido have yet to see any reports of the elusive snow woman. Not to say that there haven't been any encounters. After all, only those who live get to tell the tale. Or, in true Pirates of the Caribbean talk, Dead men tell now Now, the tales of the Yukiana are vast, and therefore vary. These variations often come with the changing of regions. Because of how expansive these variations are, I will be speaking to the main idea of her as opposed to all of the specifics and different facets. But don't worry, it'll still be enough to make you wary of the snow. Which I'm sure is exactly what you wanted. Yukiana are said to have an impressive beauty to them. In most variations, they have long black hair and deep velvet eyes. Their skin is white as snow with bodies as cold as ice. She's often seen in a thin summer kimono that would offer no protection against the cold weather in which she's found. Some variations say she has bone-white hair to match the rest of her body. What's so scary about that, other than the praying and multiple snow women part? Well... She feeds on the human souls of those who get lost in the snow, stealing it from them through their mouths with an icy breath that will, more often than not, freeze her victims solid. Though this does beg the extremely important question, did Martin Short's Jack Frost really invent chill? Or did the Yukiana? Nothing else in this episode matters but this. Seriously, email me your arguments. Best arguments will be read aloud on a future episode. I'm legitsies about this. Like, if I don't receive emails to answer this very important query, I will cry. Don't make me cry, you guys. Of course, over the years of our own existence, we've learned that things aren't ever as simple as an easy-peasy, soul-sucking freezy. Just like our very own winter My Chemical Romance Helena here, everything is always more complicated than that especially when you add in an emotion as fickle as love. Fickle as it may be, I think we can safely say that love can be one of the most powerful emotions of them all. Even a lack of love is extremely influential and powerful. Yukiana here may be otherworldly, but she still suffers from that particular four-letter word. On several occasions, Yukiana has fallen in love with the people she preys upon and has let them go free. Some marry humans and live happily together with their husbands. The problem is, supernatural spirits tend to stay young and spry and never age. Oblivious as they may be, the Yukiana's husbands do eventually figure out that something is off about their beloved betrothed and uh, run for the hills. Hopefully not the same hills where they found her, but maybe they just wanted the younger, undeader model? Or maybe they're trying to find the more age-appropriate version. I couldn't tell you. Apparently, though, finding their beloved on a frigid trail in the middle of nowhere while they're lost and she's wearing summer clothing and isn't shivering at all apparently wasn't enough of an indication that things were weird. No, it was the lack of aging that did it. Checks out. Many of the Yukiana will stay near mountain roads looking for travelers, 
or they will even break into homes and freeze all inhabitants during the night. That's right, your own four walls aren't enough to stop her. And if that isn't a horrifying thought, I don't know what is. There are actually encounters that have been documented. One instance in Niigata, a port city and the most populous city of Niigata Prefecture in Japan, tells of a man who ran an inn on a mountain with his wife. The inn was visited by a lone woman traveling by herself. She was described as kind and beautiful. That night, as a horrible blizzard surrounded the inn, the woman stood up and went to leave. The innkeeper, concerned for her safety and attempting to be considerate and chivalrous, asked her not to leave. He grabbed her hand and immediately felt a chill. He began to shiver violently. He continued on with his mission to convince her to stay. It didn't work, however, and instead, she turned into a mist of ice and went up the chimney, reverse Santa style. Couple of comments here. One, TM that position name. I don't know if it's already a thing and I'm not brave enough to look. Don't DM me. I promise you I don't want to know. Two, I wish I had the ability to cause a violent shivering before turning into a mist of ice and vanishing when people touch me without consent. What a goal. Beauty is breathtaking, but so is the ice. Ah, what I wouldn't give to be both those things. I will say, though, that I do come a lot closer to that than the nightmare of a woman I'm going to tell you about now. This next beauty. Nope, couldn't say that one in a straight sentence. (laughs) Okay, so this broad comes to us from the Upper German and Austrian Alps. A truly terrifying specimen of a woman, Frau Perschte finds her way into many stories. She comes up and searches as a horrifying witch, Krampus's get-in-loser-we're-going-shopping-level gal pal, and no matter the case, the stories told to children about her are, at best, life-changing, and decidedly not in a good way. Unless you're trying to raise a serial killer, then, based on your goal, maybe a good way? Thought to have been mentioned first in the 13th century, the name Perishta comes from her connection with the Epiphany Eve, otherwise known as Twelfth Night. Twelfth Night takes place 12 nights after Christmas, on January 5th or 6th, depending on whether counting begins on Christmas Day or on the 26th. So, name checks out. Pretty straightforward, honestly. There's a superstition that this is the last night your decor can be left up. Otherwise, it's very unlucky. According to Bone and Sickle, Perschte is a corruption of the word gibberata in the old high German term for epiphany. Gibberata not, meaning the night of shining forth or manifestation. And in the exact opposite of the manifesting we all attempt to do now, it would seem we manifested a nightmare. According to the editor of Grimm's Fairy Tales, Jacob Grimm, she shares the role of guardian of the beast during those 12 days of Christmas which end with the epiphany. Others think she could actually be Celtic. But what did this horrendous figure look like? Well, she can either appear as gorgeous and pure, or as elderly and haggard, aka Grimhilda from Snow White. Did you know she had a name other than the Evil Queen? This description is probably a result of the stories being told throughout the centuries. She has been seen as having one large foot, Jacob Grimm said that this represented the fact that she was able to shapeshift to animal form. 
I'm going to go ahead and say that the real reason is because she's the one true Bigfoot. That's why he's not called Big Feet. Fight me. <laughs> oh, so dumb. Okay. <laughs> Perishta rewards those who are generous and punishes those who are lazy, lie, and are greedy. So if you pair her with the superstition about it being unlucky to leave up your holiday decor, it sets this terrifying precedent that if you don't take down your decor immediately, you may come face to face with Frau Perchta. Okay, so you might be thinking, big deal, I can get my decor down within 12 days of Christmas, why are you whining? Well, <laughs> here's the thing about that. She doesn't only prey on the lazy, it would seem. She also likes to target those who work on her feast day. So, you can't really win either way. You either work too hard or not enough. No middle ground. She especially does not like spinners, those that twist fibers into yarn. Instead of working on her feast day, one was supposed to sit down and eat a meal of fish and gruel, if you behave accordingly, Perchta may place a silver coin under your pillow. If not, well, this is when things take a turn. If you didn't follow the rules, let's just rip this band-aid off, shall we? Like that band-aid, Perchta will rip open your belly, pull out your intestines, and fill your guts with garbage before cutting your tongue out, making you the literal embodiment of a garbage person. Maybe that's why there are so many in California. We can't afford to stop working on Perishta's feast day. I figured it out. <laughs> in addition to that, it has been said that she brings helpers with her. To make matters better? Worse? Depends on if you like children. Uh, she tends to really focus her rage on the kiddos who don't pay attention to the rules. So, all of them? According to Totally the Bomb... The story of the farmhand perfectly illustrates the capricious nature of Frau Perchta. The owner of the house had a room prepared for Frau Perchta and her entourage of ghosts to stay the night. The farmhand, hearing of Frau Perchta's beauty and wanting to catch a glimpse of her, hid in the stove in her room. Like a creep. When Perchta entered the room, she saw the stove and instructed one of her followers to plug the hole in its side. His view now blocked, the farmhand was forced to spend the night in the dark. In the morning, when Perchta and her ghost left, he exited the stove and realized that he was blind. The next year, he hid in the stove again, and when Perchta entered the room, she ordered her follower to unplug the hole in the stove. The next morning, the farmhand's sight was restored. Capricious indeed. Not to be confused with Capricorns. While her story goes back hundreds of years, she is still very popular in Austria and other locations. During the Perchtenlauf, a masked procession goes throughout town and includes noisemakers, fireworks, and people dressed up as beasts with large horns. See Krampus. So, <laughs> wrap that story up and get ready to unpack it for your kids. Or, better yet, your neighbor's kids. That way, you don't have to deal with the nightmares. Time goes quickly. It progresses, whether you want it to or not. The darkness previous to our storytelling has broken. The sounds of the morning permeate through the windows, doors, and every chink in the armor of the home, separating our safe lives from the folklore of the world outside. We're not as safe as we thought, it seems. The fire has been reduced to ashes, 
dim embers have survived the night, but the children have not. (laughs) Don't worry, they're not dead. They followed all the rules this year. No, they simply fell asleep ages ago, leaving me with my own thoughts and stories. It's been a while since that happened, explaining why they are stirring from their makeshift beds on the floor, rather than in their own comfortable mattresses and blankets. I'll wake them up. Perhaps they will tell me of their dreams. Or their nightmares. These have been the cursed tales of winter and why your kids will probably never sleep again. A quick thank you to JT of Brew Crime Podcast for his help with this episode, and to Mew for the amazing Christmas music. Both Brew Crime's podcast and Mew's YouTube will be linked in the show notes. For more cursed content, you can find me at Thrice Curse Pod on Twitter and Instagram. You can also join in the Discord group or Facebook group through my website, thricecursepod.com. Check out all of the images associated with the episode and find my sources on the blog. And if you'd like to support me in my move to Vermont, you can subscribe to the Patreon or buy me a coffee. Links to those will be on the website as well. Happy holidays, and until next time, keep your curses hexy and your hexes sexy. Now, grab your cocoa, mold cider, or whatever weird warm the Just because you may not have heard the he was a German knight and marshal within the prince elector of the Palatinat. That does not continue. That is not a continuing sentence. Towards the Odenwald rain. Rain? Range. Oh my god, scrolling on this computer sucks. He was also a Chevalier de... Oh my god. A French honorary... Honor... Fives? Fiefs? How do you say that? <laughs> Jujuling. Multiro... Multirol? <laughs> The successor to the innocent, to the innocent, mm. eventually, the successor to innocent Alexander VI, no, he is featured in the lezent, lezent, he is featured in the legend, oh my god, why can't I say legend, of Jungfernsprung, sprung, sprung, ugh, look, there comes Hans, however, before he could eat it, Trap was struggling. Hans Trap would dream up. Maybe judge from the fact that the subject has been descanted. But one local source asserts. She is arguably. Arguably? There are few parts of Japan's. Japan's? Japan's. There are few parts of Japan's. Japan. Why do I keep saying Japan's? There's only one Japan. Get your pots in Japan's, I guess. Uh. Wow, I'm dumb. Okay. There are few parts of Japan that do not. Do not. Uh. <laughs> Ooh, even better. <laughs> Jacob Grimm said that this resep. Resep. Former. For more. For mirror.